What is post-claim adjudication? Why does it matter? And how much savings can it generate? We'll find out on this episode of Shift Shapers. Change either paralyzes or energizes. The choice is yours. You're listening to the Shift Shapers podcast. You're about to learn firsthand from businesses and entrepreneurs who have successfully shaped the shifts in their industries. Get ready to become the change you want to see. This episode is brought to you by Shift Shaper Strategies. In sales, if you confuse, you lose. Clarify your message so you win more clients, crush your sales goals, and build your practice. Learn more at shiftshaperstrategies.com. And now, here's your host, StoryBrand Certified Guide and Chief Transformation Strategist at Shift Shaper Strategies, David Saltzman. On this episode of Shift Shapers, we're speaking with Jordan Hirsch. Jordan is the Vice President of Enterprise Solutions at Valence. Now, we've talked a lot, especially in this era of increased interest in self-funded plans, about deconstructing plans and all of the little bits and pieces that happen that used to just be kind of packaged up in one nice package for which you paid way too much money and got oftentimes arguably way too little. But there's a whole world of stuff that most advisors don't see that goes on behind all of that. And as a former TPA, I saw some of how that sausage was made. And that's where Jordan's company works. They kind of are trying to figure out ways to do things after claims hit and some stuff before claims hit, but it's mostly behind the scenes stuff. It's not stuff that might be obvious to a client. So with with that long-winded introduction, welcome, Jordan. (laughs) Thank you, David. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So, so how much work actually does go on post claim? I mean, most, a lot of people think, well, I, you know, I, I go to the doctor, they circle a little code on their pad. The insurance company gets the bill. I pay my portion. They pay their portion. Life is good. Right. Yeah. I mean, and, and really there, there's a lot, there's a lot that happens behind the scenes. Like you mentioned in the introduction, everything needs to go on with really understanding, you know, the best network to even choose from, you know, I think from an advisor perspective as well about how to make the best decision for that, for that self-funded plan. So, you know, there's a lot of work that goes into really before the TPA or the administrator needs to, you know, receive that claim to, to adjudicate and pay it. And that, that's really where you know, our organization Valence comes in and, and, and really provides a lot of value. So a lot of people have talked about reference-based pricing. I mean, I think they would fit that into this bucket. And the questions that I always get is, A, is reference-based pricing a sledgehammer when you need a scalpel? And B, is it sustainable? Is it a a sustainable model? What's your position on those things? Yeah, I think in the right regions, reference-based pricing can be a sustainable model and the right fit for a self-funded plant. The route that we've taken, we've seen a lot of uh, adoption in the the self-funded community has been... Instead of, you know, really taking that, that reference-based pricing approach and going, you know, full bore with it, you know, let's understand if we can achieve strong and advantageous reimbursement amounts at a percent of Medicare or at a reference-based price, but that's agreed to with, with specific health systems and really build those client-centric networks that are agreed upon and really members aren't putting any type of harm's way when it comes to the payment and reimbursement. You know, it's it's funny. If you talk to proponents of RBP, they say, well, that hardly ever happens. Client uh, patients almost never get calls for balanced bills. But I, I, I tend to hear about it more often than not. Do you think that they're minimizing that problem or that it's still a real problem? Again, I, I you know, not, not to be political, but I, I do think it, it's regional in nature. 
I think Northern California, let's say Monterey County, the amount of provider appeals based on a reference base rate compared to, let's say, uh, Houston, Texas, I, I do think there is, there is a significant delta between that. But I, you know, from what I've seen as well, David, I, w- I would agree with you that what I've seen in practice usually is is much. There's more volume of appeals and balance bills than than some of the data suggests coming out from some vendors. That's interesting. So another technique that a lot of people play around with is either narrow networks or high performance networks. Some people conflate the two of those. I think they're different things. Can you give us some some background on those two things? Yeah, I think you know from a high performance. I think narrow network. My, the connotation for me is more again just a, a narrow, narrow or concise panel of providers that you know w- without really looking at uh, quality. I think quality is kind of the big X factor there. And when we look at high performance networks, uh, it's really combining both cost in the reimbur- the reimbursement piece and also the quality aspect as well. And so how can we route steer and incentivize using plan design members to see those those providers or facilities that are in network, but how can we make sure that key metrics like readmission rates, complication rates, mortality rates, we're taking that in account and making sure that when people do stay in network or go to the, the panel of, of those high-performance network partners, they're getting uh, top-tier coverage and top-tier care, care. How often are people wowed by the fact or amazed by the fact that uh, that you and I have known and a lot of other practitioners know that there's this inverse relationship in medical care between cost and quality and you know, you sell them quality and then they all of a sudden realize, holy cow, it's actually cheaper. Yep. Yeah, all the time. And I, I think probably a lot, you know, you and maybe a lot of the listeners, you know, saw the RAND study that came out uh, a week or two ago. It also came, it had that was one of part of their executive summary. It said uh, that there is really no correlation between cost and quality. And I think there's, uh, you know, from the data we see and how we, you know, build and empower some of these high performance networks, there are some what we would consider low quality facilities with some great and high performing physicians and providers there and vice versa. There's, you know, the, some really high, high characteristic facilities out there with some very low, low performing providers there too. So you're going to get a mix regardless of, of where you go seek care. But again, from what we've seen, I think from what other sources have seen, there's really no correlation between cost and quality out there. Are you seeing any let up in the uh, medical groups trying to stop the creation of specialty hospitals? So I think if if we had had specialty hospitals and generalist hospitals a long time ago, this notion of cost and quality might have been settled. But I know that a lot of the big hospitals, especially the chains, don't really want the specialty hospitals because they feel that they're taking away their one and dones. Agreed. Agreed. I mean, we're, we're seeing that we see, you know, we partner, I guess, transparently with, with some of the, the larger health systems out there as well. But I'll agree with you, David. I, I, I think for them having kind of your more general acute care facilities out there in the market that it, it makes things a little bit more ambiguous. And if we had more specialty facilities, we would be able to probably derive, you know, a, at least have a better shot at saying cost and quality. There, there's a, there's a stronger correlation. And now, a word from our sponsor. It's a fact. Salespeople and organizations lose opportunities because they don't clearly communicate their value. In today's market, your story is your message. It should be crystal clear, perfectly arranged, and precisely targeted to attract the clients you want. As a certified story brand guide, we use the exclusive SB7 process to create that story and the websites and collateral that deliver it. If your message isn't cutting through the noise, we can help. 
Visit us at shiftshaperstrategies.com to learn how we can help you find, clarify, and deliver a message that wins clients, crushes sales goals, and builds your practice. In sales, if you confuse, you lose. So learn more and schedule that call today at shiftshaperstrategies.com. That's shiftshaperstrategies.com. And now back to our discussion. All right, so let's jump over a little bit and talk about an area that a lot of people may not be aware of if they haven't been on that side of the Wizard of Oz curtain, as I call it. This, this ability to renegotiate out-of-network claims after the fact. How big uh, an opportunity is that for plans to save money? And what's that like? How does that process work? Yeah, no good question. So yeah, I mean, really depending on the primary network, the primary PPO network, regardless of it's a, a broad network or a ne- network nation, there's going to be out of network medical claims. And that can cost plans, self-funded plans, you know, a, a lot of money if it's not managed correctly and there's not the right cost containment pieces uh, in, in place. And so that's something we've been doing for a while. And typically we see maybe depending on your standard plan, maybe 10 to 15% of medical claims do fall in that, that out of network bucket. Um, so really what, you know, the flow would be is to really understand, you know, the claims would, would flow into an organization and they'd be deemed out of network. And then it would be really using, you know, bill review tactics, even some supplemental medical networks that can achieve a discount or through negotiation to be able to achieve a discount on those medical claims. And is that's not only benefiting the plan, but it's also benefiting the the member as well when it comes to, you know, having a better economic outcome to those claims. So, you know, not either paying some some plans we've seen pay out of network claims at full bill charges some take like a usual customer approach having a much more direct and aggressive approach can can really be a game changer for self-funded plans and materially impact their bottom line well for advisors to understand though what's what's the incentive for the provider or the facility in actually granting a lower rate yeah, that's a good question. I mean, a lot of the times uh, th- they're they're looking for the, a cell phone plan to actually utilize something that's in place. So that could be using a supplemental di- net- network discount. They just they're looking to actually being paid. And many of the facilities that we deal with or providers that are out of network, when they're out of network, they they know that a, a large portion of the payment may fall back on the member. So a large member responsibility, or they're they're curious about when they'll actually get paid by uh, the self-funded plan, you know, via, via their administrator. So being able to achieve a discount, that can also assure them that they're going to be paid and have a little bit more clarity on how how the member responsibility can be split up. Oftentimes we sell, see self-funded plans offering some type of incentive in terms of how either uh, the timely payment or how quick or the breakdown on payment from the plan to the member based on if they will negotiate and accept a discount. That's interesting. So as you start looking or a TPA in, with your help, you start looking at these this bushel of out-of-network claims, this 10 to 15%. How do you select those claims to go after? Is it solely dollar value based or are there other considerations like condition or other selectors? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think, you know, for a self-funded plan, you know, typically they, they look at the dollar base. You know, there, there's some other factors that we take in, but I think from a, a pure to be able to prioritize, be able to, to achieve the best type of discount, the plan obviously has the most liability for those larger dollar claims. So th- those kind of come to the, the the front of the queue to be able to negotiate, again, you know, use clinicians to be able to evaluate the, how the medical claim was billed, look at supplemental notes about exactly what happened with that episode of care. You know, we do also 
and others out there look at uh, you know what exactly occurred. So CPT codes, uh, the other type of diagnosis codes to be able to prioritize that. But transparently, you know, from from a planned perspective, they want to do the best they can to minimize their their liability. So typically, we prioritize that typically by bill charges. And does the plan set a dollar threshold? Typically, no. I mean, typically, when when plans come to us and and other folks out in the market, they they look to see, hey, you know, if if you can't do anything to an out of network medical claim, we're probably going to again use you know usual and customary amount, or maybe even pay the claim at full bill charges. So, really, the expectation for many of our clients are saying, hey. How many, you know, a big KPI or big metric they look at is saying, how many claims can you achieve a discount on? We send you a hundred claims. Can you achieve a 95, 95% of those claims we sent to you? You achieved a discount that were on an out of network claim. So really at the end of the day, you know, the expectation, what they're looking for is us to again, prioritize and, and, and spend most of the time on those larger dollar claims. But if they send us up, $250 dermatologist bill, the hope is that we can at least achieve a discount on that and, and save the plan some money. So from what you from what you said, I would assume then that plans are looking at this as a long term proposition rather than a holy cow, we just got a four hundred thousand dollar facility bill. Absolutely. I mean, I think, again, it's, you know, we want to do the best we can to steer out incentivize members to stay in network. But again, if they do go out of network and it will happen regardless of the plan, regardless of where the location is, the plan wants uh, to be able to achieve a discount on, on those medical claims. And, you know, I think that's, that's again, a long-term view and a, you know, really, really important cost containment strategy to, to make sure that it, the plan can be sustainable in the ter- long term. Does any of this repricing ever, I mean, it must get messaged to the member and how do you, how do you message that? And do they just find it totally confusing? It is confusing. I mean, I, I think, you know, every, everything we probably, and I'm sure in past interviews and, and conversations, a lot of this is confusing in terms of how it's communicated to the member. You know, that, that's something we work typically with the administrator on is passing the right type of uh, EOB messages across the administrator. So members, when they get the actual EOB, they're able to understand that the claim was at a network, but also that Valens or whatever you know uh, organization is achieving a, uh, an out of network discount on the claim applied you know a fifty percent off bill charges or hundred and seventy five percent of Medicare uh, type of reimbursement structure to the medical claim. But typically, again, what self funded plans you know usually do you know do apply much leaner benefits if they do stray from from the primary network. So, do you advise employers to do any communication of this fact to members up front, or would doing that lead them to be more lax about whether they stay in or out of network? So, we we do advise that they do communicate by saying, if you do go out of network, one, you'll have benefits, and two, we do work with a an organization to be able to achieve a discount or you know work on your behalf to get to get a discount on out of network claim. But I think again, betweening using plan design, it's it's a very very strong incentivizer to ensure that members you know become healthcare consumers and and do stay in network. So it is communicated as a benefit to the member. But again, during open enrollment meetings, during ongoing communication education sessions, it's it's strongly it's there's a big answer to the why you want to stay you know in in the primary network or in that high performance network. I mean, have you seen a significant effort at transparency? I mean, you know, we all hear the phrase that medical care is one of the few things in life that you always get before you know what the price is, because you know, especially if somebody gets a dread diagnosis. They go where the doctor tells them to go. They don't really think. 
about whether it's in-network or out-of-network. Oftentimes, it's a dire situation. Are there any efforts at transparency that are helping that, either transparency on cost or on quality? Yeah, I mean, we we try both. I mean, with with our high-performance networks, when I'm seeing it more and more in the market, you know, you, you see tools, Castlight Health out there um, and many other transparency tools. But what we try to, especially again with, with our high performance networks, is allow, you know, through some of our uh, a program when, when uh, it's Navicare, it's more kind of care concierge, allow our members to interact directly with those folks and understand what type of reimbursement, if I'm going to go in and I'm going to have a colonoscopy in Northern California, what are my, you know, in-network options. And then also based on you know, derivative of Medicare and those types of reimbursement models, what should I expect for being the total allowable and how that would affect me as, as a member? So I think from a cost perspective, it's, it's absolutely crucial and something that uh, we're going to see more and more of as an industry from a transparency perspective. And then also on the quality, I mean, same thing again, like I spoke about earlier, you know, some very, very high quality uh, facilities and uh, surgery centers do have some low performing physicians. So we try to dive a little bit deeper too through some of the tools that we have about saying, not only are we, do we get to want to route you to a high quality facility, but we also want to ensure that surgeon is a high performing surgeon on there. So we dive a little bit deeper than just routing someone to a facility that, that gets well marks. We want to ensure that, that their physician or their surgeon also is very well performing. Are you seeing any plans mandate? interaction with a care coordinator for certain conditions? I guess out of our book of business, I haven't seen any plans mandate that. I've seen incentives though. I've seen plans incentivize through, you know, additional contribution through, you know, it could be just even external gift cards. Um, if there's interaction with that care coordinator or with that, that, that care navigator and really, you know, what, what, Again, it can really ensure that not only are they going to an in-network provider and help coordinate that visit, but also it's ensuring that they're going to and getting quality care from a high, high-performance surgeon. So I haven't seen any mandate, but I have seen a, a decent amount of plans actually provide incentives to be able to utilize this benefit that they offer of you know a concierge um, or a, a navigator. And do you have any idea what kind of engagement that gets? Not off the top of my head, you know, just uh, a swag or just off the, you know, a guess would be about maybe 50-50 of members for either in or outpatient type of care engaging with, with a navigator. But I haven't actually run those numbers in terms of peer engagement. So we've got just about a minute or two left. And I wonder if, if we were to wrap all of this up, if a plan were to employ all of these methodologies, what might their average savings be in a plan year, in a treaty year? Yeah, I mean, from what we've seen, especially also when you combine the high performance network with uh, with that the added network type of containment, and also you put you know uh, a strong care management solution on on the front end, we, we've seen a lot of stop loss cares also rate and evaluate you know networks that are uh, high performance in scope uh, and be able to pass that savings on the self funded plan. So what we're seeing is you know really fifteen to sometimes twenty five percent yield when it comes to better overall healthcare spend. So, you know, plan with a, a, a medical spend of a million dollars, implementing these types of tools and the right education training to the members, we'll see, you know, we'll, could, could uh, reduce their overall medical spend about 25%. Well, that's a tidy sum. And it's something that everybody ought to think about, especially those advisors who are working with clients who are in this arena. Great time to end our interview. Jordan Hirsch, Vice President of Enterprise Solutions at Valens. Jordan, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with our audience. 
Yeah, thanks, David. Thanks for having me. The Shift Shapers podcast is a production of Shift Shaper Strategies and may not be reproduced or quoted in whole or in part without our express written permission. Copyright 2020. All rights reserved.